Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who Is at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar and you get a better buzz. <laughs> with the Savage Premium. So go to go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. Well, Passover and Easter are upon us, and uh, it's something I've thought about all of my life. I know many of you have thought about Easter for sure and maybe Passover. And we have a very, very special group of uh, selections for you today. What I've done is I've gone back through the archives and I've selected shows that I've done throughout the years about what these holidays mean, not only to me, but what I think they mean to the world and my other thoughts about religion. Uh, remember, I wrote the book called God, Faith and Reason, and it's something I've thought about my whole life. Honestly, I think religion and faith may be the only way forward for us through these tough times. I have some remarkable segments that we have culled for you. Number one is I give you a brief definition of my interpretation of what Easter means. It's only the very religious can save Western civilization. Wait until you see what I have to say about that. The meaning of Passover, what it really means to people beyond the ritual, what it actually means to you, whether religious or not. And then, of course, religion incorporated the kind of cynical side of myself the savage meaning of a Passover Seder from 2016. What does it actually mean? Why do people still reenact these things? Or should they? And then I talk about why we need myths and religion. Remember, I've studied religion my whole life. I've also spent many times, many a year, in and out of Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, the New Hebrides, you name it. These cultures have survived for thousands of years with their own myths. And then I talk about the object of religion, which I think is to feel good and be happy and not to suffer. And I hope you enjoy all of this today on the Michael Savage Podcast. Thank you for listening. Basically, I'm talking about the meaning of Easter. What does Good Friday mean? What really happens on Sunday? When was Jesus crucified historically? When did he return from the dead? How are they combined with the Last Supper? How does the Last Supper combine with the meaning of Passover, because remember, his last supper was a Passover Seder. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Let's never forget that. He went to a Seder at the Seder, which was his last supper. Something happened to him shortly thereafter. OK, that's what we are talking about. So basically, it is celebrated in the Jewish calendar as the uh, the, the holiday of unleavened bread, matzah unleavened bread and Jewish people are not supposed to eat leavened bread until the end of Passover, which is eight days from now, the night of April 27th on the, uh, on the calendar. They should not eat any uh, leavened bread. So throw out your bagels. The bagel business is over until that day. So what does it really mean, all of this? I try to explain to you. It means a lot of different things, but it doesn't have to mean that you have to sit there in a solemn, frightened manner. And if you go to a Seder tonight, uh, you're going to see a Seder plate 
And on it, you'll see some weird things like a shank bone. Now, what do the Jews put a shank bone on there for? A bit of herbs. You're going to see horseradish, greens, a boiled egg. You're going to see a thing called herosis. What does this ritual mean, and why should it be continued for so long? Well, again, you could look this up yourself on the Seder plate. The bitter herbs on the plate symbolize the bitterness and harshness of the slavery that the Hebrew people endured in Egypt. Okay? What does the shank bone or chicken neck symbolize? Not Adam Schiff. The chicken neck or the shank bone on the plate symbolizes the Paschal lamb, the Passover sacrifice, which was a poor lamb that was offered in the temple in Jerusalem, had his throat slit, then roasted and eaten as part of the meal on Seder night. All right. Then you have a hard-boiled egg on the plate, symbolizes the festival sacrifice that was offered in the temple in Jerusalem, and the egg was roasted and eaten as part of the meal on Seder night. Okay, what does that mean? You'll have to figure... There's many different things you can look at. It's been changed over the years. You got the haroset, a sweet mixture representing the mortar and brick used by the Hebrew slaves to build the storehouses or pyramids of Egypt, okay? I will tell you something that I learned, why we feed our dogs first. It has to do with the Passover, Seder. You won't believe this one. The Jews fed their dogs first because of this. But during this ceremony of Passover, the Seder, there was always something that perplexed me as a boy because I was a rebel. And there's a prayer that says the Torah speaks of four types of children. One who is wise, one who is contrary, one who is simple, and one who does not even know how to ask a question. And they tell you what a wise child asks. What is the meaning of the laws and the customs that the Lord has commanded us? The contrary child says, what is the meaning of this ceremony to you? Saying to you, he excludes himself from his own people and cuts himself off from his own people. The third type of child, the simple one says, what is this about? He doesn't even know. And then the fourth one who does not even know how to ask it, it explains how you, you answer that child. So I always ask myself, am I the wise child, the contrary child, the simple child? And then as I got older, I realized I'm all of them. We are all everything. That's the liberation of this thing. None of us are all wise or all simple. Sometimes the simplest man is wise at times. Sometimes the wisest man is foolish at times. So I would tell children, we're all four types. Don't worry about it. Don't try to be the wisest person on the block. You know, do the best you can. But at some days, you're going to be a, a fool. Some days, you're going to be bewildered. Some days, you're going to be contrary. Some days, you're going to be all of those things. We can be both king and clown, is what I would say, that... Again, is my interpretation, but then I'm not a religious person. I'm only a talk show host. So the Seder begins with, they drink a lot of wine, Jewish people, four glasses of wine. For those who don't drink or are not alcoholic or gave up drinking, uh, you can serve grape juice. Red grape juice is great. Pure grape juice, no sugar, wonderful stuff with some ice in it, a little lemon. And it begins with the four questions where the people chant, and then it means, how is this night different from all other nights? And the answer is, on all other nights, we may eat either leavened or unleavened bread. On this night, we eat only unleavened bread. On all other nights, we may eat any vegetable. On this night, we require to eat bitter herbs. On all other nights, we are not bidden to dip our vegetables even once. On this night, we dip them twice. And on all other nights, we eat our meals in any manner. On this night, why do we sit around the table together in a ceremonial fashion? And then the matzah is uncovered, and there is an answer which says, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. 
And the Lord our God brought us forth from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And if the Holy One, blessed be he, had not brought forth our ancestors from Egypt, then we and our children and our children's children would still be enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. Therefore, even if we are all learned and wise, all elders and fully versed in the Torah, it is our duty nonetheless to retell the story of the exodus from Egypt. And the more one dwells on the exodus from Egypt, the more one is to be praised. So again, I interpret it in a more modernistic fashion. I don't dwell on Egypt. I, don't, I wasn't personally there. I don't remember it. I have no recollection of it. As I said to you in the beginning, uh, as I wrote in God, Faith, and Reason, I have a more modernistic interpretation. Forgive me if it offends you. But it's more about liberation than it is about ancestry and history. And it means that we're all still slaves in one way or another in our own lives. And that we have the power to break the bonds of slavery anytime we want. If you take it as a personal Seder, a personal Passover, whether you are in prison or you are imprisoned, you can learn to release yourself from your own chains, whether they be the prison of alcohol, the prison of drugs, the prison of internet pornography or sexual addiction, the prison of gambling. You could just have to say first, I am a slave. I have no control over this slavery. And you could beg God to help you free yourself and break those chains. And you could decide from that day forward to seek to break those chains of bondage and become a free woman or a free man again. That's another way to interpret the significance of Passover, to give it a modern meaning, an eternal meaning. And that means you must take meaning from the ancient and give it some modern meaning or else it loses its value altogether. It's not just about chopped liver and matzah. It's not about drinking cheap kosher wine. Uh, it's about much more meaning than that. You know, my grandfather Samuel is buried in Queens, New York. And I had two rabbis who were in New York. I said, would you go to my grandfather's grave? And would you make a prayer over his grave? I just was feeling this strongly. And they could not find Samuel's grave, who we call the astronaut of the family. He came over as an immigrant from Russia without a penny in his pocket. He worked until he had a heart attack and died. And then along came my father. I mean, I was, my father was an immigrant. So, I mean, I don't never met my grandfather, but I wanted them to make a prayer for him and to thank him. And they couldn't find him in the cemetery. They couldn't find the grave. And then at the end of the second day, they found it and they sent me a picture. It was so overwhelming to me to see this gravestone in this old cemetery. I can't even describe what it did to me. But they made the prayer over that grave. And what I'm saying to you is this, and I'll say it so people finally hear me. Although I myself am not a very religious man, it is the religious people amongst us who keep the whole shebang going. Were it not for the religious people, we would have nothing. We would have lost God a long time ago. And I want to thank every religious person listening to this show for what they do every day to keep God alive in our, in our society and in our hearts. Well, I respect religious Christians. I respect religious Jews. I really have always been drawn to very religious people, and I found that in my own life, that's not me because I've tried it. I can't do it. But if it was, here's my point: if it was not for religious Jews, Judaism would have disappeared a long time ago. And if it was, and if it was not for religious Christians, Christianity would have gone the way of Denmark or Sweden, where it doesn't exist at all. It's nothing. It's a social organization that pushes far left uh, uh, practices. So yes, thank God for religious people because they keep the religion alive. And that is why very religious people have to be supported by the rest of us. They are the people that keep the tapestry of religion alive. Otherwise, the tapestry would be gone. And uh, really, that's my last word on it. If it was not for the, quote, fanatics, there'd be no religion at all. 
Well, I mean, I, let me tell you something. The people who are super sensitive are having a, a rough time right now living in this world. The slaughter of the animals, the slaughter of societies, the ignorance of the people, the hatred of the people for decency. It's a very hard time to be living in the world. Leo Tolstoy wrote somewhere that those who believe their religion is greater than God will believe that their sect is greater than their religion and end up by believing that they are greater than their sect. That's on page 225 in my book in the section called Rabbi in a Brothel, a fable. <laughs> I like that. No, I wrote that in the 1980s. I incorporated pieces of my early writings in here that were written when I was actually a better writer than I am now. I had a lot of time on my hands. And I incorporated some of my early writings when I was really rebellious towards the world and my mind was so active. And uh, it's in there, The Room with a View to Eternity. I like that one. That's where I, where Henry is buried. And he says, you, we never know we're going to die. He reminded me with a 70s rocker's cackle and grin. That's such a good line. I remember burying Henry. That was, burial is heavy. People don't even... You know, most people today... You know, here's a difference in California and New York that I noticed. When I grew up in New York, wherever you drove, there was a cemetery. LIE cemeteries, Catholic, this and that. Everywhere you turn. I can name them all coming out of New York, coming out of the tunnel or over a bridge. Calvary Cemetery, uh, right out of the bridge, you know. I once had a car that broke down there at night. That was creepy. I don't even go to New York anymore. It's funny. Do I miss it? I miss the, the memory of New York. I don't miss the being pushed off the subway platform part of the New York of today. I don't miss the homeless with box cutters part of New York of today. I don't miss the anti-white hatred of the New York of today. You know, I kind of have a, a black and white memory of New York. When my mother could walk to the corner to Deitch Dairy with a little roller thing and get uh, some groceries at 10 o'clock at night and no one touched her. You know, that kind of time when the police were all powerful, big strapping cops with nightsticks. If you looked at them the wrong way, they took you behind the station and gave you a shellacking. They kept the kids in line. You know that, New York. You know the one I'm talking about. You got to get a memory, memory of that one. So, you know, I don't really, you can't go home again. I'm home. I'm home. Wherever I am, I'm home. I'm, I'm wherever I am, I'm home. It doesn't matter where I am. I'm home. I'm the same person wherever I am. As long as the air is clean. And I, I should fill in the rest, but I can't. It's a family show. As long as the air is clean, I'm good. I'm good. But you were reminded that it's pretty brief, the whole short dance in the sun. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't get too far away from a funeral on the on the highways of New York with the, the line of cars. You were reminded. Yeah, they went out to the burial grounds. You were reminded, you know, that eventually for whom the bell tolls, the, the bell tolls for the... You are reminded... California, I don't even know where the cemeteries are. They're hidden, especially in L.A., hidden. No one dies in L.A. Everyone lives forever. The, the land of the eternal smile, the land of the shiny white teeth, the land of the perennial tan, the land of the man in 80 years of age with the long head of hair, the land of eternity, not... Michael Savage, a host like no other... And I would like to explain the meaning of the of the holiday of Passover and what it means to people. And I mean, beyond the ritual, what it actually means in a person, what it can mean, can it can mean for a person, 
and how it can be used to improve yourself. I mean, again, if religion doesn't in some way give you courage, if religion somehow doesn't give you strength, if religion somehow doesn't give you hope, then that religion is useless as far as I'm concerned. Religion has to give you some connections, some connection to the ultimate power that that drives the whole universe. And, you know, the more I have studied, and sometimes more actively than others in my life, and I've studied a a variety of religions. I've looked for the truth and religion in so many different places and ways. My head spins when I think about it. You know, all of it is an attempt to find a meaning in life. What am I doing here? What's the purpose on life? Why do good people suffer? Why do bad people sometimes not suffer? The eternal questions. And if you find answers in your religion, you're lucky. Most people don't. Most people, in my experience, either go to church and synagogue and go along with the program and don't even know what they're doing there, and they hear nothing. They're numb. They go in numb, and they come out numb, and they got nothing from it. Occasionally, a person is touched or reached by one of the holy books sitting there or by a teacher. Occasionally, someone is touched, and that's good enough. You can't expect an entire flock to be touched. But there's a higher, a higher thing in religion that I've seen, whether it be Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, or Buddhism, excuse me, or Islam, or even Hinduism. All of it is an attempt to tap into some power, even paganism. If you want to, you want to go to the to the not one of the five religions, but to paganism itself, which doesn't even believe in God. It's people trying to tap into a power that runs through them. They want the power. They want the energy. They want to be enervated. They want to feel the power. They don't want to be de-enervated. They don't want to go to a church and come away feeling weaker than the, when they went in. So we'll put it in another way. Many, every year, people go to Lourdes Cathedral. By the hundreds of thousands, they flock to Lourdes Cathedral. The people believe that if they touch the holy water in Lourdes Cathedral, they can be healed. They believe the cripple can walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. And sometimes people will jump up and say, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. So again, what are the people going there for? They're going for the, the quote, miracle. What's the miracle? The energy. What's the energy? The energy is the power that drives the entire universe. It's the energy that, let's say, a plant, I'm sorry to put it in that context, but a plant, a plain old plant growing in your backyard, a blade of grass, if you truly understood how a blade of grass can start from a seed, a dormant, dead thing, and turn into a beautiful green thing, you'd understand what I'm talking about. Because that seed is you. Many of us are walking around like a seed, a husk, a dead seed. But inside that apparently dead seed, there's a living green piece of grass, just as inside a chestnut, there's an oak tree. So many of us are this seed. We're walking our whole lives like a seed, waiting for someone, whether it be a woman, if it's a man or a man, it's a woman, a woman, a man, something to awaken the seed into life and make that seed become alive and a piece of green grass or a tree grow from it in other words we come to life to put it in simple terms but people often will try to find that through religion some do some go every sunday to church some go every day to church uh devout muslim pray six times a day he believes he's reaching god in those six times a day he feels the energy and you know many of us can't feel it at all when we're alone but when you talk about going into a a temple a mosque, a church. Have you ever been in St. Patrick's Cathedral, for example, as I have been on a Christmas Eve? Or you have been inside an Orthodox Jewish uh, uh, temple in Brooklyn, New York, where there are 5,000 men at the same time chanting. Or if you have even been in a, in a village setting 
where there are 20 men chanting, you'll feel an energy that you'll never feel alone. So there's an argument for the congregation, the congregation. That's it. But I haven't touched on Passover yet, and I will when I return here on the Savage Nation. Savage. Before I go into any of these issues here on the Savage Nation, I want to just continue something I started in the last hour. The Jewish people are a very small minority in terms of numbers, both in the world and the United States of America. And they will be having religious Jews, even I I think actually non-religious Jews have a Seder tomorrow night. Maybe Christians sometimes go to them, or if there's been intermarriage between Christians and Jews, now many Christians understand what a Seder is. Sometimes Christians go to a Seder because they have Jewish friends. And it's a rather peaceful, nice long meal with uh, uh, you know various ritualistic uh, events, including the unleavened bread or, or the matzah. And what does the unleavened bread signify? It signifies the time of haste when the Jewish people were fleeing Egypt and they had to make the bread in the desert. They didn't have time to allow the dough to rise, so the story goes, and the children love this kind of thing, if they understand it at all. I don't even know if they teach it to children anymore. So the children understand that their ancestors were once slaves, but they don't quite understand what that really means. But what a modern Passover Seder can mean to millions of people, which the ancient uh, Seder may not connect in the same way, and I'm not against tradition, but I'm just saying that a lot of people don't even you know hear it anymore and don't want to listen is that although people say, well, our ancestors were slaves, it has no meaning. What it can come to mean is we are still slaves in our own life, and we can also break the bonds of slavery in our own life anytime we want. So in other words, if you take it as a personal Seder, a personal Passover, you can learn to release yourself from your own chains, whether it be alcohol, drugs, sexual addiction, or God knows what it is, gambling addiction. You could say you are a slave. And you could decide that you understand you're enslaved and you could decide that from that day forward, you're going to seek to break those chains of bondage and you can become a free man or a free woman. I mean, that's another way to interpret what the significance in order to give it eternal meaning and modern modern meaning. You have to take from the ancient to the modern and give it some modern meaning or else it will lose its meaning altogether, as far as I can tell. Are you an educated person who actually is faithful and believes in God? Because there, there are, there's almost a dichotomy there. People call and often say to me, how can you believe in God and be a rational man? How could a rational man believe in a, in, a, in a figment of the imagination? Some kind of voodoo that was created to hoodwink people in ancient uh, Palestine thousands of years ago, and which then spawned Islam and, and Christianity, by the way. Judaism was the progenitor of the three major religions. That's right. You may not know that, but it was Judaism first then Christianity, then Islam. So the three Abrahamic religions, if you want to put it that way, the three monotheistic religions, uh, go back to Judaism. And you say, well, it's all fake. How do you know? Come on. The guys were so wild in those days in Israel, those ancient olive growers. They had to be controlled. So they came up with some myth about somebody in heaven with a burning bush, and they scared them. If they didn't do the right thing, they'd be punished in the next world. How can a rational person believe in God? Well, I'm a very rational person as evidenced by a lot of things I've achieved. I I think logically up to a point. But faith is something different than reason, isn't it? Isn't faith different than reason? Because I do not believe reason is incompatible with faith. Faith is something that you believe in. But it doesn't mean it's reasonable to believe in that entity, does it? 
Oh, I believe in God. I see. I personally, Michael Savage, I'm a super rational man up to a point, but I'm also a believer. And you can hear it in between the sentences of every word that I speak. You can hear in the between my breath. You know, the mystical Jews say the the ones who are into Kabbalah, and I, I don't mean the actresses who are really, you know, whatever. Let's put that aside. In other words, those who really study Kabbalah say that the actual writings about God are in the white spaces between the letters. I don't know if you ever heard that before. It's in the white spaces between the Hebrew letters that speaks about God. That's a real mind blower. That's a trip unto itself. Well, I'm going to say something to you you've never heard before. It is the blank spaces in talk radio that explains who the host is. What you don't hear in between what you do hear is what you should hear. What is the real difference between real religion and religion incorporated? They're both cartels. They're both cartels one way or the other. Now, what do I mean by that? We read, for example, that there was a sex uh, thing over there in the Vatican. But apparently one of the top people in the Vatican had uh, drug-fueled sex orgies in his apartment, which was adjacent to the Vatican or in the Vatican itself. You forgot that story? Well, it's a big story. Vatican police break up gay orgy at home of one of Pope Francis's advisors. Oh, you know the Pope, don't you? The flat belonged to the Holy Office, which is in charge of tackling sexual abuse among the clergy. Well, apparently they were tackling sex abuse among the clergy by studying it as closely as they could. Gay orgy at the home of the secretary to one of Pope Francis's key advisors. It has been claimed. Now, this ties right into my discussion of the media cartels of elitism. We'll give you simplistic answers as the, they hold the truth to all the problems of the world. It's the same with the church. They give you the same simplistic solutions to all the problems of humanity. Meanwhile, some of them are partying on with drugs, sex, and rock and roll while telling you it's evil. You get the picture? I hope you get the picture, but it's not limited to Catholicism. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to bash Catholicism. Catholicism, as it is practiced today, is one of the world's most beautiful religions. It's the difference between the religion and religion incorporated. But the same can be said in other faiths. Need I tell you about Islam and the practitioners of terrorism who claim to be Islamic? Need I tell you or remind you about those who wear the holy robes of Judaism but may be con men? Do you think it's limited to one religion or another? You're wrong. There are rotten apples in all religions. That's why I say there's a big difference between religion and religion incorporated. How many of you have heard of scandals amongst the Orthodox Jewish community that are often not covered because people are afraid to offend this very powerful voting bloc and this very powerful community, especially in New York? I have, and it gets me sick. Anyone who uses religion to peddle, uh, let us say, larceny really are the worst of the worst. To put on the holy garments and run sex orgies or to put on the holy garments and run, uh, run welfare scams is something that we should be offended by because of all people, they should not be doing this. The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. You know, you talk about religious Jews. You know that they don't let a woman, to, a woman will not shake your hand. If you go in a religious Jewish community and you like normally don't know, you reach out to shake, they, they won't shake your hand. They say, no, it's not in our culture. They were ahead of their time by thousands of years. You can't touch their hand. 
Well, this, uh, look at the Chinese, the ancient Chinese. They shook their own hand. What, you know, that was for disease. You had to shake a Chinese hand, let's say, uh, hundreds of years ago. They shook their own hand. like uh, They bowed forward and shook their own hands. Why? They didn't want to touch your dirty hand. They don't know if you just wiped yourself or touched a, a dirty vegetable somewhere or a mouse or hitched up your shoe. So they didn't touch your hand. Maybe we should go back to not shaking hands in this society. I hate handshaking to begin with. The reason I hate handshaking is not because of the filth. I, that's number one. You know, hygiene's a big deal, and people don't recognize this. You, don't, you know how dirty things are in your society? Everywhere you turn, filth. I know this is psychologically very threatening. I'm a hand washer. People mock hand washers. But you know what? Get back to me when you're my age. I'm telling you that hygiene is the number one way to stay alive. I incessantly wash my hands. If I go in a restaurant, forget about it. I wash my hands before I sit down. I come out like a surgeon. I'm one of those guys who goes in the toilet. I'm not alone. I see the paper on the floor. They even have a can now next to the door. You wash like a surgeon, hands up. The trick is to get the paper, <laughs> sorry, out of the toilet paper dispenser without touching the metal. Because the minute you touch the metal to get the paper, if it's like in too far, bingo, you're contaminated. You have to go back to the washing stand. So you wash, you go to the thing, you pull out the paper very, very gingerly, you wipe the hands, right? Now, follow my attention. I know I'm not alone on this. Now you got a big challenge to get back to your table to eat the, the bread or whatever without touching a thing. So the first challenge is how do you get out of the bathroom without touching a door? That's simple. A foot, a knee. What do you think God gave you a knee or a foot for? It wasn't to bow down to hate, to hate America. You, you, you use your knee to open the door. Now you're still stuck with the paper in your hand. So you don't throw it on the floor like a pig. The good restaurants now have a can there near the door for the men to throw. So now you got another challenge to get back to the table without touching. What if you meet a schmuck on the way back to your table? Hey, Bill, how are you? And they want to shake your hand. Now you're stuck. Because the minute you shake Bill's hand, you got to go back in the bathroom and start the hand washing again. So you, I'm advising you that if Bill wants to shake your hand after you just washed him before sitting down in the restaurant, you got to say, uh, hi, hi, Bill, I have a pneumonia. I don't want to shake your hand or something like that. Tell him you have like the flu. No, you can, you got to get out of there. You can't shake the hand. That's just a simple hygiene is very important. And now, my friends, you know the rest of the savage story. And isn't it the savage truth today? Isn't it a savage truth today? How many myths are true? Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. What a communist he was. <laughs> you know what a communistic statement that is to say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven? Man, that was blasphemous. That was worse than Karl Marx. I don't believe that's true, by the way. I mean, I, I learned a long time ago that poor people are generally the meanest people on earth because they have nothing, and so they'll fight over anything. It's only people with money who could actually do good on earth. They could do more good than those with no money. They can spread it around and do some good things. So this whole idea that if you're rich, you're evil, and if you're poor, you're good is nonsense. I knew that from my years in uh, San Francisco's, uh, let us say, uh, North Beach community where all of the phonies reside, collecting the SSI crazy checks, hating America, hating God, hating Los Angeles, hating Hollywood. Well, you know the whole story. So money is certainly a universal, um, let us say, honey. Money is the universal honey, 
But it doesn't mean that if you have a lot of this honey that you're evil. It doesn't mean you got it because you stole it from anyone. Some people make a lot of honey because they're better bees. It's that simple. And so, therefore, I don't believe that that myth, that it's uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a, ne- of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, is true. That's a complicated statement. I hope I got it right. It's my second life I'm living through. But I don't know. I really do think I was put here for a purpose. Now I know it's bordering on sanctimoniousness. You know, I get that. But it doesn't matter what you think. All that matters is what I think about me. At the end of the day, I have to live with me, not you. Think about the, the trouble I have. So Craig, <laughs> Craig Smith writes this. He says, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. However, it must change its molecular structure. That is what Jesus was saying. We all have to change to see that God loves us, and then in receiving that love, we enter the kingdom of heaven. At least that is how I have always seen that scripture. Jesus was pals with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who was rich and hated by everyone. But when Jesus visited his house, Zacchaeus changed and gave to help people and restored all he cheated people out of. That he changed, that is why Jesus said, today the kingdom has come to the house of Zacchaeus. Just a thought. It's very interesting. Christian charity does not come from the air. It comes from the teachings. And that is why it's a beautiful religion. And that's why the religions that I keep hammering on this show, Judaism and Christianity, which are the founding religions of America, must not be pushed aside for some retrograde throwback view of the world, lest we all be cast into a cauldron. Period. End of story. No more to be said on that one. You know, when you think out loud, you got to think out loud. And so we'll go back to the big myth of today, which is the uh, myth that I'm talking about, the myth of toxic masculinity and why man needs myths. I mean, I could tie it into, I know where your mind is going. If you're a, a close follower of me, as some of you are, and you listen to every word and then try to trip me up in your own head, it's become a national sport. It's better than chess is to listen to this guy who thinks he's so smart and then try to trip him up in your head because you're such a grave intellectual in your own mind that you've already caught me in one or two complex uh, problems, haven't you? Wrong. You're probably saying, wait a minute, Savage. You're talking about the myth of the Salem witch hunt. How can I believe that God is not a myth? How can I believe that the flood in Noah is not a myth? How can I believe that the idea of a Hercules is not a myth? Even though even Hercules is not in the Bible, I'm giving an example. So how many of the biblical stories are purely mythological? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I will say this, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is our form of novelistic poetry. It is what it is. In a way, I learned when I was studying anthropology many years ago that folklore and folk tales are in many ways, they become truths. Folklore and folk tales become truths because we as a human species, we as a human animal, need myths. I don't know that dogs need myths. I don't know if cats need myths. I don't know if elephants need myths. But I know this, we as thinking animals need myths. So let's begin with, oh, I don't know if I should do this. Can I start about the, um, I didn't say the myth now, don't get me wrong. I'm going to give you the historical facts that we know to be true about Jesus. I mean, there are facts that we know, and I'm not trying to merge or inter, 
or confuse you by talking about theology and history. I'm talking about what we know historically. We know that Jesus appeared in Judea during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We can all agree on that, correct? That we all know. We also know that Jesus was a prophet. We also know he was a preacher in the fashion of the Jewish prophets of the time. We know he was a man of about 30. We don't know much more about him. And our only direct source of information about uh, Jesus, his life, and his teachings are the four Gospels. And so where do we go from there? Well, we can then jump to who is Gautama Buddha? Is he real? There was a Gautama Buddha, but who he actually was has been obscured by the fat little figure that we see in the Buddha figures. We don't know who he was and the idols of later Buddhism. We don't know who he is. Maybe he was a lean and athletic man. So we don't know what these men looked like. We know pretty much when Jesus walked the earth. We know he is the person upon whom the religion of Christianity is based. We know that he was a penniless teacher who wandered about Judea, living upon handouts of food, and yet he was so influential that a billion people on earth practiced the religion of Christianity. But is there a myth attached to any of this? I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know the truth. I do know that weak and sick people were healed and given confidence by his presence. We know that. He gave people a lot of faith. And he went about the country of Judea for three years talking about his doctrine. Then he came to Jerusalem. And what happened in Jerusalem? He was accused of trying to set up a strange kingdom in Judea. He was tried upon this charge. He was crucified together with two thieves. And so we talk about Christianity today in a mythological way. How much of it is real? How much of it is false? It's up to you to decide. And is it, does it really matter? Does it really matter how much of religion is mythology? Doesn't it matter that religion brings a moral platform and a moral idea to a society? What would society be like if there was no religion at all? Tell me what it would be like. Tell me where there's a pure society where there is no guidance, no morality. And you say, well, communism. How'd that work out for the Soviets? Where the pigs at the top of the political hierarchy were the ones who lived like the pharaohs of ancient times. Everyone else was made to live like the slaves of modern times. I don't know what happens after you die, nor do I pretend to have such knowledge. And I know that religious people have various opinions on the matter. Even within the same religion, some even within the same religion, some believe in an afterlife, some don't. Some believe life stops when a person's body dies. Some believe there's an eternal heaven. Some don't, and they're still religious. And that's why that's why that's why it's such a diverse marketplace of ideas. And it actually is respectful to believe we live in a nation where so many different ideas can can live next to each other without anger. While in the fanatical throwback Islamist world, if you don't believe the way they believe, what do they do to people? They kill them. And that's why they're such a danger to our society and should never, ever have been allowed into this nation. There should be a litmus test of religion in the country. And I'll say it again. If you hold 
throwback 8th century religious beliefs and you are led into this country, you should be found out and deported from this nation because you cannot bring 8th century views to this nation of ours and hope to survive here because there's going to be a clash like you've never seen. Running people over, shooting people in workplaces. You know where that's coming from. It's coming from the hatred that they have in their hearts from their 8th century view of the world. Trump tried. He's trying very hard to stop the flood of illegal aliens, especially those with 7th and 8th century views. And every day we wake up another psychotic throwback judge of the type in San Francisco that turned them over, turned over again. There has to be a cleaning of the house of judges in America. There has to be a purge of these fanatical left-wing dictators who think that they're more powerful than the people. They are not more powerful than the people. And the day should come that the judges are purged in this country. That's all I can say on that issue without going any further because you know where I'm going. That's all there is to it. And if you find that blasphemous, good. Good, because you judges deserve it. The stench from your bench is making us all clench. And you are not supporting Western civilization. You are distorting Western civilization. If you let bums defecate in the streets of San Francisco and call that freedom of speech, then you, my friends, are psychotic. No matter how high you may have climbed on the liberal totem pole, no matter how high you may have climbed in the liberal liberal legal world, you are lower than the lowest of the low. And that's all I want to say on that. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Let's talk about power. Let's talk about strength. Let's talk about that. That's what I want to talk about. There was a time that when soldiers went into battle in this nation, they said a Christian prayer before going into battle, and no one complained about it. The Jews went along with it. Made the boys stronger, made them able to face the enemy, even die. There's a time right now on earth where that still goes on, but not in the American armed forces, because the witches, the warlocks, the deviants, the psychopaths, the communists, the antifas have taken over the military. And of course, Trump needs to purge the military of all of the appointments that Obama made from captain and above, but that's a story for another day. I'm talking about the power of prayer and giving a man or a woman strength whether it be to run in a race, dance in a dance contest, or face the enemy in death, in battle and in death. The whole purpose of religion, as far as I can tell, was to strengthen mankind, not to weaken him. I think we have it backwards. I think that when people go into a house of worship and they come out depressed, then everything is wrong, everything is upside down. What you're supposed to be achieving in Prayer is the energy that connects you to the to the power. The Jews call it Shekinah. The Muslims call it something else. The Hindus call it something else. The Buddhists call it something else. The Native Americans call it the Great Spirit and something else. But they're all trying to tap into that divine power that empowered man on this earth. Some people don't need that. Some people can just, I don't know, they get up and they have the power in them and they just go about their business. They're great business people or they're great warriors. They don't need any of that. In their mind, they don't need any such thing. But most of us are not these great people. I just want to remind you of something. If you become depressed because of your sins, you're actually falling not into the hands of God, but you're falling into Satan's tricks. It's been written that if you become depressed by thinking about the sins you've committed, it's Satan's trick for separating us even further from God. 
The whole object here is to be happy. The whole object, in fact, of all religion is to make you happy. All of religion is supposed to make you happy, not sad. Did you know that? And so many people got it, have it so upside down, they walk away from religion because they say, this is a bunch of garbage, it makes me guilty, makes me depressed, and I get sad, I don't want anything to do with it. And there's a lot of pleasure in sin, so I'm going to go down the road of sin. That's what's happened, because people have forgotten that religion is supposed to lift you up and make you stronger and happier. Now, I guess that depends upon you and the teacher. But when you go into a place and everyone's beaten up and sad and that bad breath from fasting, you know, it's not a pleasant place to be. It's a sad place. and Everyone gets, like, depressed from it. So a lot of young people don't go anymore. They don't want to be around it. They want to be happy, so they don't go. They don't go. So where do you derive your strength from if you have no God, no relief in God? I don't know. Maybe you get it from sports. You get it from watching people get on their knee and spit on the American flag. That gives you power. You get it from hating Donald Trump. That gives you power. You get it from mocking people in the Christian Bible Belt because that makes you feel smarter than them. That gives you power. You get your power in a courtroom by robbing and cheating and stealing. That gives you the power. I don't know what gives you the power. Everyone wants power. And I have no answers to the people who don't have the power. I do know this. I know it from my own life. And for whatever it's worth, and I know I'm getting too preachy now. I know I've gone too far afield from uh, Mr. Savage talk show host to preachy savage, the one that some love but most hate. They don't want it. They want the funny savage. They want the laughing savage. They want the cynical savage, the goofy savage. But today is a day that I can't go there. Today is the day I'm here. And if I'm here, then I have to be here. And I invite you to be here with me. In other words, be here now. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Be here now with me because this is what I'm doing. This is my show. There's no script. I come before you naked today. Naked. I don't mean I'm not wearing clothing. I'm dressed in the studio. I'm naked. My spirit is wide open. I'm just wide open today. So I ask a goofy question. Do you believe in sin? Does sin exist? Probably most people listening turn the show right off. I don't want to listen to that religious garbage from that right-wing nut. I, I'm smarter than that. I, I don't need that garbage. I, I, I know everything. Okay, good for you. But almost worse than them are those who go to temple today who are Jewish who don't believe in anything. The guilty ones who go, yeah, yeah I don't believe in that garbage, but I go on Yom Kippur. Yeah, yeah, I go. I go. You're the worst kind. You're actually the worst kind. The one who doesn't believe in goes there because you think you're supposed to go there or just to do some business in the back of the temple. You're the worst. You're absolutely the worst. Home of borders, language, culture, the Savage Nation. Now, for those of you who purchased my best-selling book, God, Faith, and Reason, I would invite you to go get your copy out because we're going to read from one page together. It's funny. It's like having a little a little Seder on the air, but it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm going to give you the, my version, not the biblical version of Passover. And I'm going to tell you that although the biblical version is the most important one, my personal version is not so unimportant. And I'll give it to you right now, page 155. Are you ready for this? A modern Passover Seder may not mean the same thing to people today as the ancient one did to the Israelites. I'm not against tradition. I'm just saying a lot of people don't hear the message anymore or even want to listen, right? Although they may say our ancestors were slaves, it has no meaning to them. 
It's mumbled at Passover seders. Our ancestors were slaves. We eat the unleavened bread to remind us we were slaves in Egypt. So what does that mean? Well, what it can mean for us today is that we are still slaves in our own life, and we can break the bonds of slavery anytime we want. And if you take it as a personal seder, a personal Passover, you can learn to release yourself from your own chains, whether they be alcohol, the chains of drugs, the chains of sexual addiction, the chains of gambling addiction. You could say to yourself, I admit, God, I'm a slave. And once you admit you're a slave and that you are enslaved, then you're a slave and you beg God to forgive you and free you. You can decide from that day forward to seek to break those chains of bondage and become a free man or a free woman. That is a modern way to interpret the significance of Passover, to give it a modern meaning, an eternal meaning. And you must take meaning from the ancient and give it to some modern meaning and give it some modern meaning or else it loses its value altogether. Unfortunately, to most people, it has to do with, with chicken, with chopped liver, with gefilte fish, with brisket, with hamantashen and things of that nature. To them, it's about drinking too much wine because you're supposed to drink four cups of wine at the Seder. For too many people, it's just an excuse to get drunk around a communal table in a nice setting with a clean tablecloth and good silverware. But the Passover Seder is about breaking our bondage. For though thy people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall return, and extermination is determined, overflowing with righteousness, Isaiah 10, 22. Let's take a little piece of music and not go to a break. Go right back to me. Please, let's not talk about Mueller and the meaning of the Mueller report. I'm sick of it. I'm sure you're sick of it. You've heard it already. Two, two straight years is enough. In fact, if you play the music right now, Clint, what's this? Was this Yankel Pepper? I turn it off. It's, it makes me squirm. You know, but Diana was an interesting one. That's part of the Passover Seder. Now that you played it for me, Clint is a, is a good Christian boy, went to a, a Christian college, I think I can say. And he's a knowledgeable guy. I mean, he studied foreign languages and he knows them. But he kind of suggested the Dianu song to me. And he said, it used to make me squirm as a child. He said, what does Dianu mean? I said, Dianu is in tonight's Passover Seder toward the end after your stomach is stuffed and you're quite drunk. And it's about if God gives me this much, that will be enough. That's what Dianu means. And you keep repeating Dianu, Dianu meaning enough. That's enough. That's enough. What you're doing, you're saying to God, I don't need everything. I just need some things. I need a certain amount of things. It's a beautiful piece of the Passover uh, ceremony. I got to tell you that. You know, I have an interesting story. Where is this? I think it's, I don't know which book it's in already. It's a blur. I've written so many books because it's been such a long life to this point and may it continue until the age of Moses, but that's up to God, not up to me. In one of my books, I believe it's in God, Faith and Reason, I tell the story of a Jewish gangster who, I mean, talking about a murderer, this guy had murdered many people. He wasn't just a, a Shylock. He was a really bad dude. He had been in many shootouts. He'd been shot many times, but he never died. And he said it's only when he was dying in a prison, I think it was in Corcoran, he said he was on death's door. He was dying of a lethal illness that he said only when I was broken was I, because he was one of these tough guys who nobody could break. Do you understand that? This is what we mean by a tough guy is someone who's so tough, nothing can reach him. And he said only when I was broken by this disease and I was on death's door and I begged God to save me, did I find God and liberate myself? It's an amazing story. And, uh, it's a, I had him as an interview on the show, right? I know I did. Jewish Gangster Finds God, page 173. 
Jewish gangster finds God, not going to read it, it'll boy to death, page 173. And uh, it ends with him in the prison, hospital. And uh, he says, I'm not in the battle zone anymore. When you get out of the army, you stop fighting. He says, I'm not in that army anymore. I've been shot 11 times in the streets in this country. I've had 16 gunfights. I've been in two major mafia gang wars, and that's only on this side of the border, okay? But I'm going to tell you something, Michael. When you don't need to do that, when you're not a combatant, then you look at the, uh, you know, you smell the flowers, and I thank God <clears throat> that I'm not here. You know, listen, I faced the gas chamber on my last case, and I beat three strikes three times by the grace of God only. And I, you know what, Michael? You don't have to be a, to, a fool to sit around and compliment yourself and say, hey, it's interesting. It's all in there. I, I guess I should read it myself tonight. Do those people still exist? That kind of raw toughness? You bet it does. It exists in this country. It exists in the police. It exists in the military. It exists in the world of the crime, of crime. And it certainly exists in many other countries. Man doesn't change that much, by the way. It doesn't change that much. The only thing that's changed that much in this country is the media. The media has perverted the entire meaning of life. I want to say that I actually am thankful to God for the many lives I have had on radio. You know, they say a cat has nine lives. Well, I'll tell you, this cat has had many lives in radio. This is a man whose career has ended several times. And like a phoenix, I rose from the ashes. I am through a, a phase right now where I rose again from the ashes when it was all over on over 220 stations today, streamed around the world, reaching many, many people in my own way. And uh, the one part that is missing in my life, and I, uh, I, I can't tell you every detail of all the feelings I have about this, because I almost left it all in the last three months. I was ready to just walk away from everything for a number of reasons. But for some reason, the energy came back down to me and told me this was the place for me to be after long consideration of either doing nothing or doing other things or doing a combination of nothing and other things. God said to me, stay with what you have because I gave it to you. God could take it away from me with this, just one second. He can give me a stroke. Do you, have, you know how this works? Do you understand how this all works? That every morning you wake up, why the first prayer in the Jewish prayer book says, a number of things, but it says that my body is filled with many orifices and vessels, and if any one of them were to be blocked or closed, I wouldn't be here. It's a divine way of thanking God for every breath we take. I know you can get crazy if you think about it. A child doesn't want to think about it, nor does a human being. But it's not so bad to think about how lucky we are to have every breath, not with every breath, but from occasionally to think about it makes you a more connected person to the power that gives you that breath. That's all I can say. Michael Savage, a host like no other. We are listening to a song. I went to a Passover dinner. Alternative uh, sounds like uh, whatever. That's a Diana song. I'm going to explain to you the meaning of Passover because Passover and Easter are in confluence. It's a very powerful time for those of us who are of the Jewish and or Christian faith. And people don't sometimes really understand what Passover really symbolizes. They know some of what it means. They don't know how powerful a meaning it really has in the universal message of Passover. 
So let me begin with the plagues that the uh, ancient Israelites were afflicted with. Blood, frogs, vermin, flies, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and cattle boils. In other words, it sounds very much like Marin County to me, but the, the Jewish people were thanking God through the Seder for their, their, their freedom and their liberation from the slavery in Egypt. And this is the whole story of, in, in, the, in the universal sense of, of humankind, but most particularly in this sense of Passover of the, of the Jewish people. So during the Passover Seder, it's a ritualized <clears throat> form of saying thank you to God. And the Jewish people eat a flatbread called matzah. And it says that the flatbread is eaten. You're not supposed to eat any bread with yeast in it. To remind every Jew that his ancestors were actually enslaved in Egypt by the Arabs. And it says, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all those who are hungry enter and eat thereof. And all who are in distress come and celebrate the Passover. And so therefore, the the Jewish people during these 10 days, I believe, eat only unleavened bread. To remind themselves and the message that goes out that's supposed to go out to every let's say religious Jew or any Jew who's got a conscience is that remind yourself as though you yourself were in slavery in Egypt and therefore you're a free man and what are you going to do with your freedom it's an amazing thing if you can do it to yourself even once a day because you remember that your freedom is not guaranteed number one your freedom can be taken away from you at any time by any just about any police agency in this country, for example, can steal your freedom for nothing. Anyone listening to this show, you may think that you're smug and, and above it. You can't be touched. Let me tell you, there are more people in prison in the United States of America, a proportion of the population anywhere on earth. Your freedom could be taken away from you with a blink of an eye for no reason whatsoever. They could trump up charges. So the Jews celebrate their freedom and they try to celebrate their freedom with the Passover celebration, but they always remember it was God who freed them. didn't happen by accident. And so they sing a song, play the Dayenu song for a minute, and I'll tell you what it means uh, in a minute. So what that means is, if this, it means that that would have been enough. So the kids and the people sing, if God had brought us forth from Egypt and had not inflicted judgment upon the Egyptians... Dayenu, it would have been enough. The next thing says, if God had inflicted justice on them and had not executed judgment upon their gods, it would have been sufficient, Dayenu. And it goes on like that. If God had executed judgment upon their gods and had not slain their firstborn, that would have been sufficient, Dayenu. If he had slain their firstborn and had not bestowed their wealth on us, Dayenu, that would have been sufficient. And it goes down the list. If he had divided the sea for us and had not made us pass through on dry land, Okay, Dayenu, that would have been good too. If he had made us pass through its midst on dry land and had not drowned our oppressors in the sea as they chased us, Dayenu would have been sufficient. If he had supplied our necessities in the wilderness during 40 years and had not fed us with manna, the Jews say, it would have been sufficient. If he had fed us with manna and had not given us the Sabbath, it would have been sufficient. If God had given us the Sabbath and had not brought us to Mount Sinai, Dayenu would have been sufficient. If he had brought us near to Mount Sinai and had not given us the law, Dianu, it would have been sufficient. If he had given us the law and had not led us into the land of Israel, Dianu, it would have been sufficient. If he had led us into the land of Israel and had not built the temple, Dianu, it would have been sufficient. Do you see how it goes? And so therefore, the Jewish person is supposed to remember this. And then he concludes by saying, how much more are we indebted for the manifold bounties which the God, God has bestowed upon us? 
he brought us forth from Egypt, executed judgment upon the Egyptians and their gods, slew their firstborn, gave us their wealth, divided the sea for us, caused us to pass through its midst on dry land, drowned our adversaries in the sea, supplied us with everything during 40 years, fed us with manna, gave us the Sabbath, led us to Mount Sinai, gave us the law, brought us to the land of Israel, and built the holy temple for us to atone for our iniquities. That's the whole meaning, in many ways, of thanks. That's the whole meaning of of Passover, which is to say thanks to God for all of these things that were given to the Jewish, to the ancestors of the Jews, who are in essence the ancestors of the Christians as well. And in fact, if you analyze it, they were also the ancestors of the Muslims, because as you well know, uh, Abraham is the father of the, the, the three religions, the three of the great religions on earth, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Most educated Muslims know this and respect this, and they see the integration between uh, the Ju- Judaism and Christianity and, and Islam, and they live in peace. Unfortunately, we're living through a time, unlike any we have lived in for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, where a new uh, breed of Islam has arisen on the earth called the Wahhabi sect of Islam, that is a radical interpretation of Islam that was created, I believe, in the 1800s by a radical Saudi cleric, uh, ra- uh, excuse me, a radical cleric. Of course, it couldn't be from Saudi Arabia, I don't believe, because Arabia at that time, I don't know if it was Saudi Arabia, it was Arabia. The Wahhabi sect of Islam is a very militant sect. It is being disseminated throughout the world, especially in the United States, by Saudi Arabia, who is spending tens and tens of millions of dollars building these radical mosques, which teach not cooperation, but antagonism. Everybody who has studied this knows that. They are a threat to our civilization, not Islam, but Wahhabism. And so therefore, at that note, I depart uh, from the savage nation at this moment, again, telling you that uh, with Passover and Easter, this is a phenomenally powerful time for Jews and Christians alike. It is a time for power to be experienced. The power of God himself can come into your being where you can stand up to any dictatorship or any dictator. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.